I couldn't have picked a better song myself. And so I'm so grateful for the way God works together all details sovereignly in His plan. I am a flower quickly fading. A perfect theme for this message that we're going to be uh, learning from this morning. Most of us would love if we could be remembered forever. We work hard in life. We toil for hours, days, months, and years to accomplish things of lasting value. We invest our time into relationships with others, our friends, our co-workers, our children, grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. We desire to know that our actions have lasting meaning. So naturally, it can be hard for us to accept the reality of our death. I'm not saying that we don't understand that one day we're going to die. All of us, I think, understand that. But what I mean is that we often have a hard time coming to grips with the notion that in all likelihood, in just a few short years after we are gone, we might be forgotten. People may have forgotten who we were. See, life continues on even after our death. And sure, while we may have many loved ones who were close to us during our life, we know that in time, over the passing of years and decades and centuries, uh, those people pass away too. And pretty soon, um, there's nobody left who might remember who we were personally, everything that we stood for, everything that we did. That's a very difficult concept to accept. Yet it's also a very biblical concept. We read in verses like Psalm 103, verses 15 through 16. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. And Ecclesiastes 1.11 says, There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Again, deep verses for us to ponder. So the big question is, what are we to do with these dark realities? Well, one way you might respond is to try to fight against it. Surely there are people who have done that, and maybe that might even be the attitude in your own heart. You might say to yourself, well, if this is the case, I'm just going to try harder to build a lasting legacy for myself so that I can fight against this, so that people really will remember who I am, who I was, what I stood for, all the things that I did. And people try this in many ways. They might try to... Um, to write a journal, to, to write down details of their life so they can pass that on to their children and grandchildren. You might try to uh, climb the corporate ladder to, to achieve a really high position. Or maybe you just might start your own business. Maybe you'll try to give a lot of your wealth away as in a giant act of charity that will be remembered for all time. Or maybe build up a large portion of wealth just to pass it down to your family. If you're somebody with an artistic mindset, maybe you might try and Uh, Go and compose something, if it's music or if it's a painting or if it's a poem. Maybe try to set your mind to it, to to build something that's lasting. Or maybe you just might try and buy a really big tombstone so that when people drive by on the road, they'll see that and say, hey, that must have been a really important person right there. Um, I think if we're honest, we can see how futile even the most extreme of these attempts would be. For consider the kings that lived ages ago. Thousands of years ago, in a city that we now know in modern-day Iraq, King Sargon ruled uh, the mighty nation of Assyria. And if you remember from your Bibles, Assyria was the nation that ultimately uh, conquered Israel. Well, in the past century, archaeologists have discovered a huge monument to Sargon. Uh, It's a huge statue that would be, I don't know, maybe up to these speakers that you see up here for the organ. You know, taller than you or I, 
uh, with Sargon's face in the front, and his body is that of a bull, and he has two massive wings. And there's thought to be uh, two of these statues that, that exist in the past. I think one might exist now. One here and, and one over here, guarding the entrance to his palace, his great palace. And on one of these statues that they discovered was this inscription. Here is the palace of Sargon, king of the universe. King of the universe. That sounds ridiculous to us now. Because I bet before uh, I mentioned his name this morning, probably the majority of you have no idea who Sargon is. So, it shows that even if we build gigantic monuments to ourselves, if we put inscriptions on them, if we attempt to do something of real lasting value, even the kings of this world will be forgotten. So surely we cannot prevent our names from fading out of memory. But that doesn't mean that we should necessarily despair. It might sound that way from this opening that I'm giving you. It might sound, boy, this is going to be a downer. Thanks, Pastor Dave. Going to pick something a little more uplifting, perhaps. Um, but this, this isn't meant to leave us in despair, and that's not where this psalm is heading this morning. For in actuality, our text, Psalm 90, tells us there is great value to be had when we come to grips, when we accept our own finiteness. And as I've studied this passage, I believe there's five ways that owning our own mortality can make us wiser in ways that God intended. And I'd like to devote my sermon to outlining those ways for you. So let's dive into it. I hope you have your Bibles open in Psalm 90. I mentioned that oftentimes people are faced with the reality of uh, their own death, the fact that they're going to be forgotten, the fact that they're finite, and they try and fight against it. Obviously, we've just shown that that's ultimately in vain. We can't fight against it. What other ways are there to respond then? Well, some people just kind of curl up in a ball and, and just are faced with the fact that there's nothing they can do to make their name live on. They're not going to live forever. Their lives are short. And ultimately, they're going to be forgotten. Then they throw up their hands and say, well, then what's the point in life? If I'm ultimately going to be forgotten anyway, what's the point of living if I can't do something of lasting value? But I think we all know that that's not the attitude God would have us to have. Rather, God gives us a different attitude that we find in Psalm 90. What's our alternative? Well, if um, we come to grips with our own mortality and our own inability to produce something lasting, then the value of that is that we can turn our attention to God. It can cause us to turn our attention to our Creator, who is, in fact, eternal, who does continue on in contrast to our own limits, our own mortality. So the first benefit of accepting the reality of our death is that it causes us to look beyond ourselves to God, who is eternal. And that's where this psalm begins, interestingly enough. If you look to verse 1 and verse 2 of Psalm 90, it reads this way. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth or the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This psalm, as you'll see in the title above verse 1, was not written by David, but by Moses. And this is the only psalm, I think, that bears that distinction. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe this is the only psalm that has that superscription at the top written by Moses. And, and that will prove to be very important in ways that we'll talk about in a little bit. The context of this psalm will supply a lot of information to us in interpreting it. But here Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And that puts life into perspective right from the beginning. Before you or I were ever around, God was. God was. Throughout all the generations before Moses, you can think of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, Levi, 
who was Moses' descendant. Uh, even all the way back to Abraham, God existed and was his people's dwelling place. He was their comfort. He was their foundation for living. And so then we move on to verse 2, which speaks even more to his eternality. The idea that God has existed since the beginning of time. Before the earth existed, it says. Before the mountains were created, it says, you are God. And I think it's interesting that it says, you are God. We wouldn't write it that way normally. We wouldn't expect it to say that. We would normally expect it to read, uh, before the heavens were created, before the earth was made, you were God. But it speaks to his eternality to say that, no, you are God. Almost to give the impression that God is outside of time. God is beyond time. Even things that we believe to be long past, God is. Not that God was, but God is. He always is and always will be. It's an amazing way of putting it, I think. Long after you and I are gone, millions of years from now, God still will be. And I think these things are helpful for us to put into perspective because uh, then we may get the sense that even though we may cease to exist, our lives may end. God is going to continue on thousands, millions, infinity into the future okay, of years. And it's good to look back the way the psalm does in verse 1 because it shows that God has always cared for our ancestors in the past, those who have believed in him. And he will continue to care for our descendants long after we are gone. You know, why is it that we so desperately want our names to be remembered? Is it because we want people to remember all that we have accomplished? If that's the case, then it's helpful to be reminded that God is greater. God is greater than whatever works we hope to achieve in our lifetime. And whatever little we have done is nothing compared to what he has done in history. And the comforting thing is to know that what God has done will never be forgotten. Countless generations after us will continue to speak of what he did with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of the patriarchs before us. God has been the refuge of all the generations before us, and he will be our descendants' uh, refuge as well. So as you can see, recognizing our own finiteness can stop, cause us to stop, rather, uh, stop thinking about ourselves, our own accomplishments, our own actions, and find comfort in God who is eternal, who has been the help of our, our ancestors in times past and will continue to be long after we are gone from this earth. But there are many other benefits to reflecting on our own mortality. The second is that it leads us to an awareness of our own sinfulness. Now, you might ask, how does it do that? How does reflecting on our own mortality cause us to think about our sinfulness? Well, let's look in verses 7 through 10. This might be the most difficult section to understand, so I'll try and explain it to you. Um, the idea in these verses are that uh, we are transient as grass. In, in the few verses before it, I'm skipping those for now, but you'll see we'll come back to them later on. We are as transient as grass. We are like grass that is uh, sprouted up in, in, in the morning and then fades away, disintegrates into nothing, and is blown away by the wind. Okay, That's tough enough for us to accept. But then we get to this next section of verses, which takes an even more disheartening tone. Moses says that throughout all our lives, we have, quote, been consumed by God's anger. And he says, all of our days have declined under your fury. And so on, in verses 7 through 10. What does he mean by this? It seems like a harsh way of viewing the world, of viewing life. 
Well, to understand what Moses is saying, we need to understand the situation Moses was writing from. You see, at the time Moses was writing this, in all likelihood, he was wandering in the wilderness. You have to go back to to the, uh, the first five books of the Bible to understand what's happening here. You see, Moses was supposed to lead the people to the promised land in Canaan. But you might know the story. When they sent out spies, as the song goes, ten were bad, two were good. And ten of the spies gave a bad report about the land, said that there are giants there, people who are mighty in battle, where there's no possible way that we could take them, take over this land. They didn't trust God, even though God directly told them that they would have that land. And so God judged them for that. These ten spies led the other people of the, of the congregation of Israel to also disbelieve God. And so in judgment, he caused them to walk 40 years uh, in the wilderness until he finally led them back to the promised land. And he said everybody under a certain age was going to, uh, I'm sorry, everybody of a certain age and older was going to die in the wilderness. That was their judgment. And so when we read these, these verses in Psalm 90 and see all this language of judgment, how we're under God's fury, I think that's the key to understanding it. Because Moses was very much living under the fury and wrath of God. The people he was with were very much living under the judgment of God. Let me just read from Numbers 14, verses 26 through 34. And I'd invite you to turn open to that passage. Um, Keep your hand, your finger, whatever, on Psalm 90. Flip back to Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 34. And we'll read this very informative text that will inform where we are in Psalm 90. I'm sorry, uh, Numbers 14, verses 26 through 34. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who is grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all of your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you have not come into the land which I will swore. I'm sorry. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, and Joshua, son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years and you will know my opposition. Okay, You can flip back to Psalm 90 if you'd like. This was the judgment that God handed down to the Israelites. And this is what both Moses and the people had to live under until they died. And so in this light, we can see how back in Psalm 90, Moses wrote verses 7 through 9, For we have been consumed by your anger, he says, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 9, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. You can see how that fits now. The Israelites suffered every day because of their sin. And even though some may have repented, they still felt the weight of their sin the rest of their lives. Now, you might wonder, what does that have to do with me? 
How do we apply this today when that was very much to their own situation? Uh, I'm not a part of the Israelites in the wilderness, you might say. And that's true. Part of interpreting the Bible correctly uh, means that we have to understand things in context. So we can't just go and just blindly apply everything that we read without taking in consideration of that. Um, And I think it's good for us to admit that we aren't back in Moses' day. People had to offer sacrifices uh, every day. They had to offer their, their sacrifices whenever they sinned. That was a very different time. We don't have to do that. We're not reminded of our sins in the same way that they were. But there is a sense in which um, we can't just skip over verses 7 through 10 as if they're, they're irrelevant to us. I think there is a way in which they do still apply to us, and I want to explain that to you just now. And that is while God does not always set our sins in front of us like he did with them, we still all live under his wrath to a certain degree in that we live under the curse. For that was, in fact, God's judgment against all mankind. Okay, so we're not in Moses' scenario where we are children who defied God's word. We are not going to enter in the land of Canaan and, and God's told each of us that we have to wander for 40 years until we reach that land. That's not true of us. But there is still a sense in which these verses are, are applied to us. And I think all of the Psalms, including this one, are not just written for a certain context, but for the benefit of the people of God. David wrote Psalms uh, that pointed very much to his own scenario when he was being chased by Saul, when people were very much seeking his life. Yet we don't just limit those Psalms just to him. He meant them to have a wider value for the church, for God's people to read later on and apply. And I think there's a a sense in which we still feel the weight of our lives in the way that he describes. He says again in verses, um, sorry, verses 7 through 10, We have been consumed by your anger And by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before us. Okay. Now, we don't have our iniquities ever before us in the sense that God is continually judging us. We know that our sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Okay. And that's a comforting comforting thing. However, we all still live under the general curse of mankind. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, there were certain curses that were brought down against all mankind since he acted as our representative. That we still feel. We still feel a measure of pain in this life. Things, is, things aren't all rosy for us. And I think you can see that. You would say amen to that. Okay? Just because we are Christians doesn't mean that God has removed every difficulty from our lives. It hasn't, uh, he hasn't caused everything that's difficult to be removed. Um, we, to give you an example of this, um, we still feel death, don't we? Even though we have been saved from our sins and Jesus has forgiven us, we still die. We still bear that natural consequence of judgment that God handed down to all humanity. What other kinds of things cause us pain in this life? You could think of of a number of them, I'm sure. Think of all the natural disasters that happen in this world. Uh, Floods, famines, um, hurricanes, earthquakes, things of that sort. We know that those things are a result of the fall because they're not going to be present in the life to come. So those two are examples of God's judgment on humanity that we very much feel as we live out our lives. Even labor, okay, when we have to go through uh, you know, hard days at work, we have to toil just to earn money to, to buy our food so that we can survive. Okay. Back in Genesis 3, God said to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will, you will eat bread. Thorns and thistles shall grow up around you. Life was made harder at the fall. There were certain 
kinds of judgments that God handed down to humanity when Adam fell. And we can't just blame Adam as if, oh, that's his fault, and why are we being punished for his sin? No, I think you know that the Bible says that we are all guilty in Adam's sin. We, if we were in his place, we would have done the same thing. And so that judgment is rightly deserved on all of us. And so there is a very real sense in which as we live this life, we feel the hand of God's judgment, the results of that, the consequence of sin. Because we all die. We all feel pain. We all have to suffer through a world that's broken. And even the earth is broken in the sense of all these natural disasters that happen that wreak havoc on civilizations and humanity, cause lives to be lost. We very much feel God's judgment. And, and that doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven us. Again, it's possible to hold to both of those things, that we can feel the wrath of God and yet still be forgiven. Certainly Moses wasn't somebody who was guilty um, in this case. When he was wandering in, in the wilderness with the people, Moses wasn't somebody who disbelieved God. God wasn't personally judging him, but he felt it. He felt the weight of the community's sin upon him. And so basically what I'm saying is, Wherever we go, we can see the evidence of God's judgment in the world in which we live. And it affects us. It affects how life feels from birth till end. There is a very real sense in which the psalmist here, Moses, can describe uh, life in this way. He says, verse 10, For all our days of our life they can contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. So one benefit, what are, we, what are we going to take from all this, from verses 7 through 10? One other benefit that we can have by reflecting on our own mortality is that we can understand better the weight of our sin. The weight of our sin. Because um, all of this is wrapped together. As Moses is talking about the frailty of life, which he just described in verses 3 through 6, and how fleeting we are, he says also how God's uh, anger, God's judgment how the, the weight of our sin affects him in all those short years of his life. So it's not something that Moses is, is faced with and he ultimately despairs. That's not where the psalm takes us. But rather, he, he describes it in such a way that now he is made more aware of it for the better. Now he is caused, caused to trust in God more than he would have before. So when we see in verses 7 through 10 that we are consumed by your anger, um, we are dismayed by your wrath, Yes, there is a sense of that. And yes, that can be a good thing. For as we live our lives, as we feel the pain of this world, we are reminded once again that we are frail. We are weak. We are always in need of God's forgiveness and help because we are so frail. So the second reason that we can be glad for accepting our own mortality, uh, understanding it, grasping it, is that it causes us to trust in God more fully and look to Him for forgiveness. It helps us to understand our sin a little better and to rely upon him for forgiveness and for restoration. And I think that's where Moses is going. Next reason it's good for us to accept our own mortality is that it teaches us to make our days count, since they are limited. Verses 11 and 12 say, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury, according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. If you've been to a funeral, perhaps you've heard, verse 12 before, where it says, so teach us to number our days. And when we recognize that life is short, then we begin to understand how important it is to make those days count. 
And I'm not talking about making them count in the sense of go do something crazy. Okay? Some people say, okay, uh, the Bible says teach us to number our days, so let's go and, and do everything we can before those days are over. Let's make them count and let's go do something wild. You know, um, you might have heard of the term bucket list. Okay? Some people have a bucket list. In other words, things they want to do before they kick the bucket. All right? And uh, maybe, you know, you thought of something like that. Uh, before I die, I'd like to go, I don't know, climb Mount Everest. Or before I die, I'd like to, you know, read a, or write a whole book. Yeah, not read a Hopefully you read a book. Um, <laughs> I'd like to write my own book. Maybe I'd like to write my own life story. Maybe I'd like to try my hand at painting. Maybe I'd like to learn a new language, okay? Maybe I'd like to go see the running of the bulls somewhere. Yeah, I, all that stuff. Okay, so people make these lists of things they like to do. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. It's not saying, teach us to number our days, and so go and do whatever to make them interesting. Okay? It's very pointed into what it's asking us to do. Um, he wants us to make our days count in the way that's further described in verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Once we realize that our lives are short, we should devote our time not just to wild and meaningless things, but to seeking wisdom. Now, you might think that wisdom is just another way of saying knowledge. And, of course, knowledge is bound up in wisdom. But there's more to it than that. Um, if we read the book of Proverbs, and I'd, I'd commend that to you, you'll see that wisdom involves not just knowing the right thing, but doing it as well. Now, this whole notion of obtaining wisdom is very much connected with the previous section where we just talked about God's wrath. And that connection is found in verse 11. We often skip over it and just go to verse 12. But let's read verse 11 again. It says, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? And then it says, So teach us to number our days, and so on. See, there's a connection between verses 11 and 12. And verse 12 begins with the word so. Okay, so is a connecting word. It's giving a reason for something. So that means we're supposed to view these two verses together and not just verse 12 on its own. In other words, what Moses is saying is there is great wisdom in understanding God's wrath, God's fury, God's power. And so God, teach us to, to devote what few days we have to understanding these things better. You see, you might think it's strange that Moses would say um, that you and I should contemplate God's fury more. Okay? That's kind of a downer and... We don't often do that, but there is a reason, and that's because reflecting on these things leads us to be awed by God more when we consider his power, his wrath, his fury. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we wish to be wise, it's not just about taking out an encyclopedia or a dictionary and just learning all that you can. It starts with the fear of the Lord. And understanding that fear, grasping that fear, regards uh, understanding his wrath and his fury more. How awesome he is. How terrifyingly powerful he is. And Moses understands this because he joins those three ideas together. God's anger, fear of the Lord, and then wisdom. All together in these verses. And I think there's a reason for it. So don't just make your days count by filling them with really fun but temporary things. Fill your days with a desire to know and fear God better. Read his word. Study his character. Pray more. And do you know why? Because fear will lead to a knowledge of God. 
and knowledge to reverence. Reverence to service and obedience. And when you're done with this life, you'll be able to say, as verse 12 says, that I presented to the Lord a heart of wisdom. So let's review where we're at. So far we've said that accepting your own mortality does the following things. It causes us to look to God who is eternal. It leads us to consider our own sinfulness and trust in God's forgiveness and renewal. Number three, it teaches us to make our days count so that we can gain wisdom and please God in the days that we have. And now the fourth one. It teaches us to take satisfaction in the proper things. When we recognize that we are mortal, that our days are limited, that we're unable to produce anything lasting on our own, it teaches us to take satisfaction in the proper things of life. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. This goes back to the point that we made about all the trouble there is in life. Our years are filled with difficulty, with hurt, with sickness, with pain, with loss. And what's more, we've already established that the things we try to make last ultimately are forgotten. Well, when you take those two things together, you might ask the question, well, what's left? If life is as dismal as you're describing it, Pastor Dave, if it's filled with pain and we can't do anything to make things last, what is left for us to be happy about? And verses 14 and 15 give us that answer. The Lord. The Lord and His loving kindness. And it says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with Your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You see, God's loving kindness never changes. It never passes away. It never fails us. It's something that we can always count on. It was true of Him thousands of years ago and will be true of Him forevermore. You can always rely upon God. And therefore, that is something that we can truly take satisfaction in. That's where true happiness and joy can come from. For God's love and care for us is so amazing, so permanent, so trustworthy, that it can drown out all the other dark and difficult parts of our lives. So much so that this verse, verse 14, says that we will no longer be wallowing in despair, but singing for joy. Singing for joy. Again, this psalm is not meant just to break us down and say, oh, there's nothing to life. Life is terrible. Moses is doing that intentionally. God is doing that intentionally through Moses to take down all the other things that don't matter and say, listen, these things are fleeting. Your life is fleeting. The only thing that's not fleeting is God. God is eternal. God's love is eternal. So focus your time on that. And you'll find that if you put these other things aside, this is the thing that will bring lasting joy. Lasting gladness. So much so that with all the other things there are to worry about in life, you will be able to sing for joy when you think about it. And that's amazing. So that's another benefit of reflecting on how finite we are. Everything else is stripped away. We are left with the reality that the only thing that matters is God. The last reason that I'll give to you today, that it's good for us to recognize our own limits before God, is that it causes us to entrust our works and our labors into his hands, who can cause them to endure long after we are gone. Verse 17 says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. In this case, if you're reading an NIV this morning, or, or maybe uh, an ESV Bible, 
I like the way that it renders this verse a little better than the New American Standard. It's just a little bit clearer because it says, rather than confirm, it says, establish the work of our hands. That's how both those translations choose to render this. And I think that's the real meaning here. In other words, Moses' final prayer is, God, through your sovereignty, cause our works to have lasting value. We said before that on our own we are unable to make our legacy last. But God can cause our works to endure when they are part of his larger plan. So the big question is, do you want to have meaning in what you do? Do you want your works, your labors, your toils, everything that you've done up to this point to have meaning? Then ask God to use it in such a way that it will endure. Devote your energy not to meaningless things, but to righteousness. Don't give your time to trying to make your name known, but to making God's name known. And that becomes the difference between whether our works exist long after we are gone or not. You see, in the middle of this psalm, there were some pretty depressing words about man's mortality. And you might have wondered why I skipped them. We kind of talked about them in principle, but here they are. Verses 5 and 6 says, You sweep away our lives like a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and the evening it fades and withers. However, the overall chapter of Psalm 90 begins and ends with something much more encouraging than that. And I think it's on purpose that you find in the very beginning verses and in the end the same theme, and that is God. From the beginning we learn that it is God who is eternal, verses 1 and 2. He has been present in every generation, even before the earth and the stars began. And then in the end of the psalm, we are reminded that it is God who will continue to endure, who alone has the power to make our works endure long after we are gone from this earth. So what's the bottom line here? What are we to learn from this? The bottom line is life's short, and you're going to die. All of us. We talk about people, and we get worried when we hear that they have life-threatening illnesses because we're afraid that they're going to die. And can I just be honest with you this morning? So are we. So are we. Matt Chandler, a pastor of a church in Texas, whom I listen to on a weekly basis, um, he's only about 37 years old. And about two years ago, he contracted uh, a form of brain cancer um, that for a moment looked like it was going to take his life in a matter of days. The doctors were able to uh, operate on it, and and thankfully at this time, uh, they were able to remove it, and the cancer's in remission. Um, And he was asked a very interesting question. As I was listening to his sermons one week, sometime in the past year, um, he he relayed a very kind of funny uh, story, an interesting quote. Um, Somebody came up to him, well-meaning, and and they asked, do you ever get worried that this cancer might come back someday, that you might actually die from this? And I love his response. He said, die? I was always going to die. Whether it was going to be cancer or being hit by a bus when I walked out of the church this day, I was always going to die. Just a matter of how. And that's something that's good for us to recognize. Your time is limited. So what are we going to do with it? I beg of you to follow the wisdom of this psalm. Number your days so that you might learn to fear the Lord and present to him a heart of wisdom. And if you are troubled by the notion that one day you might be forgotten, then place all of your works and your efforts and your time in God's hands for his kingdom. Because while you and I will one day cease to be on this earth, 
God will always be. And when we place our labors in his hands, he can establish them. He can cause them to have lasting value after we're gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress upon our minds the full wisdom of this psalm. Not just to wallow in the sense that our lives are short and we are limited in what we're able to accomplish. But God, that those thoughts would drive us to further turn our attention to you. To stop trying to make a name for ourselves. Stop trying to find a way for people to remember us. But to find a way that people will remember you. We learn through this psalm, Lord, that you have been our dwelling place. And you have been the dwelling place of all who have come before us, who have trusted in your name. And you will continue to be. And Lord, as we think about the brevity of our life, we are encouraged knowing that you are always going to exist. You are. It's not that you just existed in the past, but you are. And God, we put our faith in you. We put our works in your hands. We recognize, Lord, that if we are simply just trying to make a name for ourselves, our works will not last. Eventually, one day, we will be forgotten. But God, if we devote our time to making your name known, then that will surely endure. So God, cause our works to be established. By your power, establish the work of our hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.